A word from our sponsor, if I may. Waterfall Security Solutions is providing free, unidirectional remote access licenses to help customers through the COVID-19 emergency. Modern industrial sites often rely on support visits from key employees and visits from product and service vendors. Such visits may not be possible during the coronavirus emergency. To help customers through this difficult time, Waterfall is providing remote screen view product licenses to new and existing unidirectional security gateway customers. These licenses are available at no cost through the end of September 2020. Unidirectional remote screen view provides safe remote support to protected industrial sites, even across the internet. For details of the program, please visit the Waterfall website or reach out with an email to your host, andrew.ginter at waterfall-security.com. Thank you for your attention and please stay safe. Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome, listeners, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting as usual with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. Andrew is going to introduce the subject and guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? It's going very well, Nate. Thank you. Our guest today is Marco Bloom. Marco is the product manager for Embedded at Weboo Systems. Uh, Marco is going to be talking to us about intellectual property management tools with lots of examples from discrete manufacturing. Hello, Marco. Thank you for joining us. Um, I understand that you folks at Weboo Systems serve many industries, but I'm especially interested in your work with discrete manufacturing. We have not had very many guests uh, talking about automobile factories or washing machine factories. So, you know, before we get into the security, if, if, if I may, can you give us an introduction? What does one of these factories look like physically? You know, what kind of physical equipment do you see if you walk into a factory like this? What, what's it like? Imagine a factory just as a hall full of machines. The machines are from different manufacturers and the hall can look in different ways. Sometimes it's, it's loud uh, when working with steel or wood or metal. And sometimes you have it quite clean uh, when working uh, with pharmacies or electronics or uh, building small devices. So if you come in, what you see in the foreground is usually machines like milling machines, conveyors. Um, in automotive, you often have handling robots or welding robots. And um, sometimes you have these automatic vehicles uh, driving around. In between all this, you have forklifts and people doing their work. And sometimes you just see very small machines like imagine a torque wrench. And this can be connected wirelessly to the system to um, control quality data and uh, having a lock how the screws are uh, fastened with the, with the wrench. Or think about additive manufacturing machines, better known as 3D printers, also part of uh, what you can see if you enter a factory. So you have various things from 
really looks like a factory to looking nearly like an office. Can I ask uh, a sort of for just a little more detail, um, you know, and can I ask how how big is one of these factories? How many people work in there? How many machines are there? Are these all the same kind of machines or do you, you know, what, how, how much variety do you have in one of these places? You can find all. Um, you can find places where um, cars are constructed, where you have a big variety from different manufacturers. Or you have just a small workshop where uh, 3D parts are printed, and then you will find three or four printers all from the same manufacturer and additional four or five um, pre-production um, workplaces uh, with just a PC and a monitor. So you can imagine the whole bunch of uh, kinds how a factory can look like. What Marco just described there sounds a little different to me than the usual sort of refineries, pipelines, power plants that we usually talk about on the show. It is. It is. Um, and, you know, this is one of the reasons I found this interview so fascinating, because I have limited experience with uh, discrete manufacturing. Uh, you know, I'm much more familiar with, with what's called process manufacturing. What You know, what's the difference? In discrete manufacturing, we take small things and assemble them into big things. Think an automobile, lots of parts and assembled into a whole or, you know, uh, assembling laptop computers, assembling uh, washing machines. These are all taking small pieces and, and assembling them. In the process industries, you generally are dealing with something that either is a fluid, it might be a gas, it might be a liquid, or can be modeled as a fluid, like traffic in a traffic grid or you know rail locomotives on, on, a, on a, a, a railway system. But you're basically dealing with... Um, sort of large fixed installations so you know imagine a refinery um, dozens of massive distillation towers or catalytic cracking towers these are big basically cylinders you know six seven eight stories tall and you know i don't know 50 100 feet across dozens of these things and they all sort of stay there and you know, the process industries, because they're dealing with fluids, the fluids are generally inside of stuff. And so what you see on the outside are these massive installations that don't move. Whereas the sense I had from Marco is that if you're looking at um, a large discrete manufacturing site, um, then there's robots everywhere, there's stuff moving around. The stuff that you're manufacturing has to physically move from one machine to another to another to be acted on by those machines. And the other point he made is that there's enormous variety. Whereas, you know, if you're if you're standing there in a refinery looking around, a, sort of a, a layman standing in a refinery looking around versus a layman standing in a large power plant looking around might not see a lot of difference. You know, there would be different large lumps of things, but you can't really see what's happening inside of them. Whereas in these uh, these discrete manufacturing sites, it sounded like there was enormous variety. You know, the, the smallest ones might look like an office, the biggest ones, you know, look like an automobile assembly plant and, and everything in between. So, um, you know, we haven't got into security yet, but, but uh, I was fascinated by his description of the uh, sort of the the milieu, what, what we're talking about in terms of context for our discussion of security coming up. On the computer side of things, what kind of computers or controllers or, I don't know, automation 
do you see in these factories? You know, is there a plant operator, someone with a bank of screens looking over the whole thing? Is it all local? Is it is it programmable logic controllers? Is it robots? What you know, what kind of automation do you see? This is the point where different industries are uh, not so really different. So just think all this uh, IT or technology stuff in a block diagram. And then you have just invisible stuff, uh, for instance, inside the electric cabinets, like the PLCs or industrial PCs. And somewhere inside the machine, you have intelligent sensors. It can be a camera, it can be a laser sensor with its own intelligence, which does a pre-processing of uh, his measurements and just gives a yes or no, for instance, for quality checks. Or think about um, highly integrated stuff like an automatic pump or a motor inverter. And all these different platforms are um, based on, on ARM systems, sometimes uh, based on a microcontroller or up to uh, x86-based industrial PCs with a complete operating system and all the stuff. And also, on these boards, you have different operating systems, often Linux, often Windows, or you have real-time systems like VxWorks or uh, RTOSs, or on the microcontrollers, just bare metal firmware implementation. And that is the same on a small workshop with three 3D printers or in a big factory. That's what I meant with, uh, think in a block diagram. It's always the same uh, technology, always based on some kind of computers. And can you comment on the people involved? I mean, in the, the process industries that I'm familiar with, power plants, pipelines, there's always an operator. The human operator is, the, in, in a sense, the focus of automation. Is there an operator in these plants? Yes, there might be an operator um, in, in bigger plants. But the uh, interesting guy is the technician or the service technician who uh, does the maintenance or repairs to the um, machines or, um, or systems. In the best case, he's a universalist with a big understanding in electronic and programming in IT network and so on. But how often do you have technician with this universal knowledge? So in reality, you have a minimum of three persons. And that is when, when talking about all these uh, security things important for us, uh, when we implement security for those systems, it is uh, not to impede the uh, established processes. The electrician comes, changes a device, and must be able to uh, get it running without thinking about uh, IT stuff, network stuff, or other things. That's something we must keep this plug and work or plug and play. And uh, that's also a part where we, we are involved in different research projects um, to um, get a plug and play system all over the industry that uh, we don't um, harm these standard processes. So this is where I think I'm hearing that there's a, a significant difference in terms of personnel between discrete manufacturing and process manufacturing. I mean, there are technicians in both spaces. I mean, if, if something breaks down in the process 
plant in a in a power plant for example um, it has to be repaired uh, and it's the the technicians that are are you know out and about doing that not the uh, the 24 by 7 process operator but as I said, in, in a power plant, the automation seems, in, in my experience, very focused on the operator. Everything builds up to the operator who sees and understands what's going on. And then the operator, uh, if they see a problem, they would call up one of the technicians and dispatch them to, to deal with the problem. Whereas in discrete manufacturing, I have the clear sense that that technicians are, in a sense, more the the the, the focus of automation in a handful of of these large machines um, is the local technician, not so much the uh, the operator if there is one. And uh, you know why is that? The sense I have is that it's because. Um, these, you know, in the, in the process space, we're dealing with fluids. In the discrete manufacturing place, you're dealing with physical things moving around. And so there's a lot, in, in my understanding, in the discrete space, there's a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, where is the enemy of all moving parts? And so when you have a, a complicated machine, you know, a machine is as big as a, a small living room, um, and it is no longer working properly. What's coming out is the wrong thing coming out. Well, you've got to shut the machine down. Someone has to crawl inside and try and figure out which piece of the machine has worn out and replace the worn parts. So in my understanding, the the uh, one of the big differences here is that automation in discrete manufacturing is focused on this local technician who needs a lot of skills, who might actually need to call on other technicians to come in and help because uh, you know as Marco pointed out there's a lot of skills involved but the focus is on this this person whose job it is to keep these machines that are constantly wearing out working when you have to get in there and repair those living room sized machines uh, is it comfortable in there can you fit a couple of pillows in <laughs> no you uh, it's actually a, a to me it's it's a very scary proposition because if this wretched machine starts up while you're crawling around the insides or have your arm deep into the insides um, you know this it turns into a very bad situation very quickly so um, you know in the olden days I don't know about the modern world but in the olden days um, you know working on a, a production line for one of the the big automobile manufacturers was actually physically a, a very dangerous process you know people died on the job so yeah it's uh, it uh, pillows is, is the wrong model to me it's it's scary stuff so more or less dangerous than podcasting it would be uh, quite a bit more <laughs> than podcasting. In the industry that I'm most familiar with, power generation, often the uh, the owner of the of the facility, if you're building a brand new facility, will go to one vendor. I don't know, GE, Siemens, ABB, somebody, and say, "Build me a power plant," and they will build the physical plant. They will produce the turbines and install them. They will install all of their, uh, you know, automation controllers, all of their automation software, front to back. It's one vendor. Um, other sites, you know, you see a mix of vendors, especially sites that have been around for a long time and have changed hands many times. Um, what do you see in these discrete manufacturing sites? Is there such a thing as a site that's all one vendor? No, you often have a very big diversity you have in in bigger plants you have one manufacturer for the plc's for instance siemens then you have another um, vendor for uh, measurement cameras for instance cognex 
and you have this second uh, or the third vendor for uh, motor controllers that might be SEW and so on and so on. So it's the, the different uh, blocks or sensors, actors, controllers are from different vendors. That's normal. And with all of these computers and networks, there are obviously security concerns. This is what we're about, the Industrial Security Podcast. Um, can you talk about um, how are all these, these computers and these devices connected in these plants? Can you talk about, about you know, computer or even physical security priorities in these facilities? Let me start with a basic, which is often confused. Um, and that is the wording, safety and security. So just to, to keep it easy, I think the safety requirements protect the man from the machine. Think about these emergency buttons. And security requirements protect the machine from the man. And so security is that what we are talking about today. And often people then think, ah, you need a virus scanner. That's important. But security is much more than just having a virus scanner and a password when starting your PC. And with this in mind, let's see in the industrial environment um, uh, the different views of the stakeholders. So let's start with the manufacturer of components. Component of a plant, a machine, a system, whatever, um, can be a PLC. It can be intelligent sensors. It consists of control software. You often have special programming software for configuring the sensors. So these are different components. And you have the system builder. The system builder is seen as the guy or the company who builds machines or even builds plants. And um, both the component and the system builder have the um, the aim to protect their IP, which is in the devices. That can be, for instance, in a camera, can be a control algorithm or um, how they handle special data and so on. So that is their IP, which they need to protect. And on the second hand, they want to enforce licensing. So that means they don't want the uh, system to be copied or for instance by competitors or um, they want to sell extra functionality think about a motor controller and then i um, have an extra functionality of licensing more access or more values or whatever and they often want to grant or must grant the integrity of their software so that means um, there is a certified product a certified firmware or a certified parameter set, and then they must uh, ensure that the customer gets exactly this certified uh, set of parameters. Um, that might be interesting for quality management, uh, for instance, for measurement tools or in medical devices, avionics, and, and things like that. That is what the system builder wants. Then think about the plant owner. The plant owner uses the system and one, for instance, he wants to protect his uh, recipes. Recipe can be uh, a mixture or it can also be machine parameter sets, how to uh, cut iron with a laser cutter. It's also a recipe 
or an IP which he needs to protect. And also the plant owner often wants to grant the integrity for the software or the product he produces. These are the three main stakeholders you met every time you have such a system. Now think about 3D printing or additive manufacturing. Then you have a fourth stakeholder, and that is the owner of the IP of the printed goods. And it makes it quite complicated because you need the decrypted data to print the stuff, but you want to make sure that nobody copies the data. And even when handling this data, you you are, as a third person, handle uh, the IP and the copyright of somebody else. It's also a legal problem. So, Nate, I really loved, uh, you know, Marco's first observation that, that safety is protecting the man from the machine and security is protecting the machine from the man. Um, you know, in, in the safety case, uh, I take his point absolutely. If, if I'm the person going to be crawling into one of the, these machines to find a, a component that's worn out and needs replacing, I really do need that safety button on the outside of the machine that I can press the button and shut the machine down and be confident it's not going to start up while I'm crawling around the inside. Um, and when it came to protecting the machine from the people, um, the sense I had is that uh, it's all about, you know, in his perspective, it's there. There's a lot. There's a much greater emphasis on intellectual property protection in the discrete manufacturing space. Um, now, this this might be because you know intellectual property protection is Weibo's sweet spot. So, of course, this is what he's he's focused on. But I had the sense that there's a lot more intellectual property in this space than there is in in uh, process manufacturing. I take your point, Andrew, but it sounds to me like you're focusing on one end of, of what goes on here, which is the product itself, the commodity. Um, in that case, I understand that electricity isn't really pertaining to IP. On the other hand, the other side of this is the machines that produce the commodity. And in that sense, I imagine that discrete and not discrete manufacturing are pretty similar. So is IP really that much more relevant in the end for discrete? I think there is there is a role for IP protection even in process manufacturing. I mean, um, you know, things like um, the design of, of steam turbines. There's patents all over the place. The design of automation for the steam turbines, the, the algorithms that you use to analyze vibrations and diagnose problems with the turbines, these might all be, uh, you know, trade secrets. They might all be um, patent protected, copyright protected. Um, but, uh, and, you know, so that's, that's true of, of certain kinds of automation, certain kinds of machines. Um, I think the point here is that that the uh, the intellectual property in the in the discrete manufacturing space uh, extends deeper. So, he, you know, Marco gave the example of a a laser cutter. So it's not just the design of the cutter. It's not just the design of the automation for the cutter. Uh, it might be that the manufacturer, the person producing the automobile or the washing machine, has programmed the cutter in a certain way to, to cut the steel in a certain shape, in a certain design that is uh, you know, unique to or even patented for the stuff they are producing. Or um, you know, the 3D printer. 
when you produce something off a 3D printer. I don't know how this stuff works, but you know, I would not be surprised if you had to pay a license fee for every copy of a design that came off a 3D printer because you purchased that design from somebody else. It's not just the printer that is you know, has intellectual property embedded in it. It's not just the controller for the printer that is intellectual property embedded in it. Everything, every component that comes off the printer reflects a design that you've either built yourself and you want to protect or you've purchased from somebody else who wants to protect it. Understood. Andrew, what was your next question to Marco about? Well, we're changing gears a bit. Uh, Marco's been talking about sort of general background of discrete manufacturing and automation and priorities for intellectual property protection. We're diving now into what does Weibo have? What does Weibo do? How does it work? So can you give us a quick overview of, of what you have and how it works? We focus on all kinds of security uh, protection and licensing for office IT over embedded systems down to microcontrollers. So we are focused on the protection of the software part, not perimeter or network. And this is all by using cryptographic standard methods um, where all other um, objectives can be derived from. So the main focus is IP protection. This can be done by encrypting the software. Licensing can also be done by encryption. And there it's uh, important how the keys are handled that the software can be copied, but you can't decrypt it because you don't have a key. And we have the part integrity protection, which is in the cryptography done by signing of software. So that seems straightforward. Uh, Can we start at the top? How does your license manager work? The user or the software uh, vendor is often not the specialist for cryptography. So we have three major points to help the user from our point of view user or can be also be the software vendor um, to help implementing our solution into his software on the one hand side it's a toolkit called code meta protection suite which does automatically encryption code injection and so on that the software the software vendor produces is protected the second important thing is, where do you store your keys and licenses? That is where we provide different forms of hardware-based dongles that might be USB, that might be an ASIC, um, that might be an SD card, which is used to securely store the keys and also to do the cryptographic calculations. And the uh, third thing is the management of the keys and licensing uh, licenses. We have a database-based system called License Central, which can be, with a connection to your ERP system, uh, automatically generate licenses and transfer it to the customer. So all these three uh, things, um, protection suite, key storage, and License Central, um, makes it easy to use the software and even easy to use for the end customer that uh, the system does not impede him in his standard processes. So that was interesting. When I think of license management tools, I think of tools for vendors, you know, tools so that vendors can make sure customers don't run more copies of of a product than they paid for. Um, 
Uh, can you talk about, you know, is, is that what you have or do the end users get security benefits out of, out of these products as well? Yes and no. Um, the basic idea is um, that software vendor keeps a hand on his product, controls the amount of copies, as you said, and forces to earn money. That's what the software vendor wants and needs to do. But um, there are different possibilities how also an end user can profit from this uh, technology. Let me tell you from one example, which is really in place with a big company who is producing the programming software for PLCs. And they have a license management in place where uh, you need to buy a license to use their programming li uh, software. But when I buy a programming software for PLCs, I create own IP. I create the program for the PLC. And I can use the same technology uh, the vendor you, uh, uses to license the software. And I can use the same dongle, the same system to license my PLC program to the machine or uh, to my customer. So the main focus, IP protection is we encrypt the software or the data and with this method we can protect it against reverse engineering against that somebody can look into the code into uh, my ip second focus licensing so we have an encrypted software package that can be copied no problem but the key you need to decrypt the software and use it it cannot be copied so the whole copy is useless if you don't have the license key. And uh, that is how licensing works. And on third base, we mentioned it before, we have the integrity protection. That is done, you check ahead of the protectee. So like people know it as a MD5 hash, for instance, uh, we have a bit more uh, complicated hashes. And that is used to, to grant the validity of a file. Even if the file is not encrypted, sometimes you have a data file, everybody must read it, but you must make sure that nobody has changed this file. And therefore, you, we use this um, signing of the file and um, also um, do the validation against our um, private key. All other objectives are derived from these used um, methods like encryption or uh, signature. The user is often not a specialist for cryptographic. And that is one of our added values, what, what we can deliver. We have the tools to easily implement all these cryptographic methods into existing or even into new software or into the build processes of a company. And that is uh, one big software suite we call the Code Meta Protection Suite, which does all the encryption, uh, code injection for uh, cryptographic methods and so on. And the second, nearly more important thing is the base. You need a secure anchor. You need to store your keys somewhere. In the best uh, way, you store it in some external hardware like USB dongle, in our case, it can also be an SD card or uh, internally 
built like a smart card chip. You can also integrate it in your own electronics using the ASIC and um, put it directly on the PCB and communicate via SPI. That's also a possibility. And if a dongle or um, an ASIC is oversized, you can also use software containers. They are also encrypted and bound to individual um, hardware measurements like IDs from the chip, from the processor, or even environmental uh, things you can uh, use as an anchor. And now uh, our new version is you can also use it in the cloud. Then you do all your uh, authentication and licensing against centrally hosted servers. So up to the concept you want to uh, use. And we have a third um, point. We have the management of the keys, the licenses, the rights. There's also a product in place called License Central. Uh, that is the database which um, is hosted centrally, can be on-premise, can be hosted by Vivo, can be hosted somewhere else, uh, depending on the needs. And um, you can connect this database, this License Central, also to, to SAP, to other ERP systems and integrate it completely in the sales process so that if somebody buys a software package or um, or a device which is protected with a license, the license is automatically transferred to the customer by this uh, integrated system. And um, one more thing to the um, transfer of the license, the license also contains the keys to decrypt the software you have bought. But this transfer is completely agnostic to the media. You can use a disk, internet, email, it doesn't matter because it's an encrypted file which can only be decrypted on the target device. So if somebody gets this license file, he can't do anything with it. It only works for um, the target system or the customer. So that was a deep dive. Uh, let me try and, and uh, provide a little crypto tech background and, and uh, you know, provide sort of a high-level picture flow through, through that flow. Um, encryption means scrambling something, so you can't read it anymore unless you have the key. A hash is used to detect changes. So we can tell if a version of software is exactly the same as the version the vendor blessed. A signed hash is one where we encrypt the hash in such a way as to prove that the vendor produced the hash and not somebody else. Um, Marco also talked about anchors, using anchors for the hash. Um, this is where, as part of the hash, we don't just look at the software and calculate the hash on the software. We calculate other things into the hash, things like CPU IDs or other hardware chip IDs, so that the only way the hash makes any sense is if it uh, you know, reflects the correct version of software running on the correct uh, piece of hardware, the correct machine. And of course, you know, once we have all of this stuff lined up, we've got hundreds or thousands of machines in the factory, in you know, some of these big factories. We need a way to store all of our licenses. We need a way to manage them. We need a way to assign different licenses to different pieces of hardware for different lengths of time. You know, we might have a machine that fails on us and we want to move the software license to another, a backup machine while, in, while we're repairing the first one. So we need to manage all of these licenses and hashes and uh, 
uh, anchors and, and keys as well. So this is sort of the, the very high-level picture of, of uh, what Marco was, was diving into detail on there. So you've been giving us examples about protecting intellectual property rights, but a little while ago you were also talking about how you protect safety. Can you dig into this, that, that example for us? Imagine a software vendor producing software for medical devices or even ATMs. Both is something we have in place. Then the software vendor later on can use the uh, licensing system to sign his product, his firmware for the ATM or medical device to ensure that um, he has delivered a certified software. So talk to me for a minute about certified software. How often do you see, uh, you know, it, it, what's the right word? It, you know, can you give me some examples of where software has to be certified? Is this something that the end user wants? Is this something that, you know, the, the law requires in certain jurisdictions? When, when do you need certified software? This is something which is often required by law. Think about medical devices. There you have different laws that uh, only certified devices, and that includes the operating software, uh, are allowed to be used. Think about avionics systems or think about uh, train controllers, or even on ATMs. Think about ATMs, there it is not by law, but uh, the banking industry uh, called the PCI, the payment card industry, gives the requirements for the certification and uh, what the software is allowed to do and what not. So when we're certifying stuff like this, um, where does it start? How, how do you do this? This is part of... Uh, certificate handling. Uh, it's a new solution called Certificate Vault and it handles the known standard X509 certificates and using the standard APIs like PKCS11, the Microsoft Key Storage Provider, or even SSL or TLS. Let me give, the, give you two examples how to handle this or what it is needed for. Uh, think about your email certificate for Outlook, for instance. Um, usually it's located on your hard disk. If protected a little bit, you have to enter a password when using it. There you have the attack vector. The certificate is located on your hard disk. And that is what Certificate Vault does. It puts the key material and the uh, certificate into the dongle, into a secure hardware. It is no longer on the disk. Um, the same can be done for VPN connections where you can make sure that somebody who steals your PC is not able to log into your company's network because you don't have the dongle with the key material. If you transfer this to industry, think about UPCOA communication. That is something where we can bind our certificate vault with the storage to the SSL stack of OPCOA because OPCOA is often not used with certificates because it's too complicated. And our aim with our solution is to make it easy to handle. A clarifying question. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't study encryption. I'm not a guru on encryption. But the, uh, you know, the sense that I get is that in the, in the world of, of, you know, B2C, business to consumer, um, you have a small number of servers, the bank, you know, Amazon, the place you shop. 
and you have a large number of clients. And it is the servers that need to authenticate themselves to the clients. The clients need to become convinced that they're really talking to the right server before they surrender credit card numbers. The sense I have, though, is that in the industrial automation world, there really aren't clients. It's servers talking to servers by and large. And so you wind up having to deal with way more certificates. I mean, in, in the, the, the consumer world, it, it's, the, it's the businesses that that are you know that, that have to, to to worry about certificates in the it seems to me that in the industrial world everything almost everything needs a certificate you got way more certificates hanging around is that is that fair is that accurate that's absolutely correct um opc ua if you're not familiar with that it's a standard for machine to machine communication uh with the standardized profiles that different devices from different vendors can uh, share their information and the communication is secured by TLS, SSL, what you know as HTTPS and so on. Um, and this is done by certificates and the certificate authorizes or identifies the server. And in this case, every sensor is called a server. The client is the system above the big data collector is the client and you have lots of servers in the field. So this begs the question, if you've got that many more certificates flying around, uh, you know, you've got to make it easy to produce these things. You talked about technicians at the very beginning. You know, if you've got a technician in there, you know, how much do they have to know to get their job done to replace, I don't know, a, a, a faulty controller or something? Do they need to, you know, they, they need to know the wiring, they need to know internet protocol, assigning IP addresses, certificate management. You know, there's... There's got to be a way to make this simple. You know, how, how, do you, how do you manage that complexity with all those certificates hanging around? In the easiest case, the keys are stored in a USB dongle. And when replacing the component, you move the dongle to the replaced device. But <laughs> the reality is often not so easy. But uh, it can also be done by implementing a certificate rollout process for the replacement of a component. Because... As you said, the technician just changes the hardware component. Maybe it's like the device boots up, the technician presses a button, and then an automated uh, certificate request is sent to an internal server system. That's one possibility you can implement in the plant. The other one is if you don't have a plant with a certificate server and stuff like that, just having a pre-programmed certificate, you trust the company you buy your device from. So you can also trust a pre-installed certificate from the company who builds the device, and then you just trust this certificate which comes with the device. This is often enough to make sure that you are talking to the device you expect you are talking to. That's often all you need in this position. So Andrew, why is it exactly that certificates are so much more common in uh, in industrial security than in IT security? It's a question of um, who needs to prove who they are. So think, you know, banking. Think business to consumer. I've got my laptop here. I connect up to my bank. Uh, the bank has never seen my laptop before. The bank doesn't care who my laptop is. Um, my laptop, though, cares enormously that I'm really connecting to my bank. And so the bank has to prove to its clients 
that the bank is who the bank says it is because the clients are, are going to be giving up account numbers and passwords and you know possibly you know two-factor dongles or credit card numbers so the the uh, the bank has to prove who it is it you know it believes it, it's going to get it's going to ask the 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 user to identify themselves but the, the the bank doesn't care who the user's laptop is but in the industrial space you've got a lot of equipment trusting each other okay the the uh, a plc really should if, if i give the plc a command to turn off a, a large uh, expensive machine that plc really should demand to know who am i why should i believe that your command is legitimate um, similarly, if I ask that same sensor for the status of that machine and it says, well, it's powered on right now, why would I believe that? Um, you know, the device really has to prove, should prove itself to me saying, I really am the device. You really can believe what I'm telling you. And so when you have these, these situations where the device, you know, has to really should see some proof that the things giving it commands are legitimate and the things that are reading from the device really need to be you know to, to see some proof that the device is who it says it is and not an imposter sending false information to confuse the whole process well each of them has to authenticate to the other each of them needs a certificate you just you need a lot more certificates in the industrial space Okay, I understand the importance of the fact that machines need to trust each other and that there are a lot of them talking to a lot of other ones of them. Um, is it really necessary? The thing that stood out from Marco's answer for me was that every sensor is gets its own certificate. Um, Andrew, you and I have talked plenty on the show about how many, just how many sensors uh, you can have in a in a plant. So, is it really necessary to have you know? hundreds of of individual sensors each with their own individual certificate or is there a more efficient way to say uh group them together without losing too much by way of security there's always compromises you can make the in a sense the modern design the modern approach is that every device authenticates itself to every other device um but uh, sometimes there are shortcuts. Uh, so, I mean, Weibo, I'm not sure they're in this space, but uh, there are um, vendors who provide things called bump in the wire authentication. So this is a device that would have two network interfaces, um, one into a, let's say a subnetwork of, I don't know, 25 PLCs, and the other network interface back out into the, the real, you know, the, the industrial network. And so you would you would take the wire that connects the subnetwork to the real network. You'd put this device in there, the bump in the wire, they call it, plug it in on both sides. And now it would pretend to be the 25 devices to the rest of the network. And it would do that in such a way as to... Uh, uh, you know, provide the, the authentication for the devices. It, people generally don't do this to reduce the number of certificates. In a sense, you still need a certificate per device. It's being done, and all 25 certificates are being managed by the bump in the wire now. Um, you use the bump in the wire when the original 25 devices cannot manage their own certificates. They're just, you know, they're old devices or they, they don't support that function. It's possible, but only if your network is designed that way. If you have a lot of different equipment on that subnetwork, if it's not just 25 PLCs, but it's a bunch of servers and a bunch of diagnostic equipment and, and who knows what, 
Well, now it's very difficult to, to get that bump in the wire in the right place, um, which is why, like I said, in the, in the modern world, um, the, the modern equipment tends each to manage its, its own certificate um, so that you can uh, arrange it on the network however you want, and you don't have to be so careful about grouping this bunch of equipment together so that you can stick a bump in the wire solution in front of it. If everybody has its own certificate and there's a management system in place to make this management of certificates simple, um, you know, that's, that's the modern approach. So thank you so much. We like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? We do our part in delivering an easy to implement but very secure tool for hardening the shop floors. But it takes additional efforts from all other stakeholders to protect the industrial realm from uh, current and future challenges. Therefore, we have close collaborations with industrial associations and academia in different retail and development projects. And if all parties in the described supply chain work together, the result will be an end-to-end -end security from which all stakeholders can benefit. Andrew, it's about that time in the show when I ask for a last word from you. What I have been thinking about um, the, whole, the whole show here is that classic industrial security, it talks a lot about safety, it talks a lot about keeping people you know, unauthorized people out of the industrial system. Um, but here we're talking about protecting the intellectual property of the vendor. We've observed that in the discrete manufacturing world, at least um, almost all industrial sites are their own vendors. They're producing very valuable um, intellectual property of their own in terms of designs and, uh, you know, settings for, for, you know, how you assemble things, how you, how you cut things. And in the discrete manufacturing world, you've got such a huge variety of equipment, of machines that people need to crawl into and crawl around inside. And you really do need certified protected software as the only software running in that equipment that, that uh, you know, you're risking your, your arm by sticking it inside of. So classic industrial security talks about keeping people out. Classic IT security talks about protecting the information. So what I've heard here is some clear examples of where it is important to protect the information in industrial systems. Since we're applying some classic IT techniques into industrial systems here, um, if, you know, for me, for the first time that, that I've heard these examples. So I, I thought it was very insightful. Then with that, let's wrap up. Thanks to Marco Bloom for speaking with you, Andrew. And as always, thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure, Nate, and uh, we'll catch you next time. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast from Waterfall. Thanks for listening. <laughs>